Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, Moses writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving to you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. You shall not set up a pillar, which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, or one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. You shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office in those days. And you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord your God will choose. You shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instruction that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously. Again, church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Tana, my wife, is an excellent cook. 
It's one of the reasons, perhaps, why I have gotten into working out over the years. I have the desire to maintain some level of physical fitness, and so I have to when your wife is this good of a cook. Now, on the one hand, she's able to follow a recipe. She can do that, certainly. She's got the ability to walk step by step through a recipe. Her strengths really come out when she walks to the pantry, opens the doors, and then walks over to the fridge and opens the doors, or walks over to the freezer and opens the doors and begins with nothing but ingredients. She's a true dyed-in-the-wool cook. She loves that. She loves the creativity that it takes to put all this together. She's also, over the years, become a good baker, but I will tell you that she is not as good of a baker as she is a cook. She's exceptional at cooking. Now, when she bakes, I love it. It's delightful. There are times, however, when she and I have talked about this, and she's told me, she said, you know, I just don't really like baking as much as I like cooking. And so we've unpacked that just a bit. Why is that the case? Why is it, you know, because here I am, I know nothing about any of this, other than how it tastes after it's produced. And I ask her questions like, what do you like about cooking more so than baking? What is it in particular that you enjoy about it? And she said something like this. She said, well, when I cook, it provides opportunity for an immense amount of creativity. And so I'm tasting all along the way. I'm adding a little here, taking this and putting this in there. In fact, her palate really astounds me. Tana is one of those, and some of you in the room are as well. I'm not. Tana is one of those that can taste something and tell you what it's missing or what ingredient is perhaps a bit too much in the dish. Baking, on the other hand, is different. Baking, for her, as we've talked about this, baking is stricter. You might even say baking is a bit more like a science than than an art to one degree or another. Now, I know there's a lot more than that. This is a bit simplistic, but that's oftentimes the case. And I've seen this happen even with our children as they walk into the kitchen and Tana's had them in the kitchen. And, and baking oftentimes means we hand them ingredients and a recipe to follow. And it's very simple. What are they to do? Follow the recipe. Don't stray either to the right or to the left. As we just read in Deuteronomy. Just follow the words on the page. Because if you're baking, you know this. And we have some exceptional bakers in this room. I won't embarrass anybody. If you're baking, you know, too much creativity early on, too much maybe confidence early on in the baking process may result in a flat cake or, or dense cookies. So baking initially demands the simplicity of following the recipe. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 and following reminds us that congregational health and congregational life is closer to baking in this respect than it is cooking. In other words, what we have here in the text is we have here a kind of recipe for health, for the health of the nation, the health of the people of Israel as they're entering the land of Canaan. We have here a recipe for Israel's life. What does it mean, Israel, for you to live a long time in the land God is giving to you, the land of Canaan? 
And in this sense, Israel does not need, now get this, Israel does not need a tremendous amount of creativity early on. It's not what they need. God doesn't come to Israel in the text and really throughout Deuteronomy and say something like this, you know, get creative and get innovative with how you might obey me. It's not like that. You you receive the recipe and, and it's quite simple. You just follow the recipe. It's what you do. Just do what it says. Church ministry, I think, is similar. I think it's similar here. Creativity proves helpful. Innovation to one degree, innovation to one degree or another proves beneficial. But at its foundation, the health and the success of a local church depends in large part on the congregation's commitment to follow the recipe given by God in Scripture. It's one of the things I love about pastoral ministry. And while there is some creativity to it, certainly the most let's say it this way, the most successful churches, not by the world's standards, but by God's standards, the most faithful churches, the healthiest churches are those that simply follow the recipe. Do by God's strength and by God's spirit what he has required of them. Well, this morning, here's what we're going to do. We are going to walk through this recipe given in the text by God initially to Israel. And this recipe initially provides three ingredients for Israel's congregational life and health in the land of Canaan. Remember the context. This is the second generation of the people of Israel after they've come out of the land of Egypt. So God has rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt by means of his strength, by means of the Passover lamb, by means of his judgment on Egypt themselves and also on Pharaoh and his army through the Red Sea. However, that first generation of Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness, and as a result, they perished. And so they spent approximately 40 years wandering around the wilderness and dying off on account of God's fierce judgment. Well, now Deuteronomy really is a a kind of sermon, as we talked about Months ago, when we began Deuteronomy, it's a kind of sermon that Moses offers. Moses is 120 years old, and he offers this sermon to this second generation of Israelites as they are about to inherit the land of Canaan. The wandering has concluded, and now it's time for God's people to go into the land of Canaan. And what matters as they're inheriting this land and as they're possessing this land is that they follow the recipe. What matters is they do by God's strength what God requires of them. And so in the text, what we find is, if you're taking notes, three ingredients for the life and the health of the congregation of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. However, and I was reminded of this even this morning by Pastor Tim as we prayed together. Pastor Tim prayed for me that as I stood, as it were, in between two worlds, the world of the text and then our world here, 21st century Powell, Tennessee at First Baptist Powell, and we're using that language from John Stott. Our desire isn't simply to look at three ingredients that provided at one point in time, many, many years ago, for the health and the life of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. Our desire is to read this text as Christian scripture. And so for us, I would submit to you, when we find these three ingredients for the health and the life of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan, what we find as we read them and interpret them through the coming of Jesus Christ is we find three ingredients for a healthy church. We find three ingredients for a healthy and vibrant 
congregation in the 21st century. So I submit these to you from God's word. You could say what we're going to do is identify and unpack three ingredients of a healthy church really given to us by means of the Spirit of God in Scripture this morning at First Baptist. Powell. So let's begin looking at these three ingredients by reading verse 18 again. Look down at the text with me where we find our first ingredient. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. The first ingredient God gives the people of Israel for their congregational health and their life in the land is what I have called upright leadership. Upright leadership. Now there appear to be a few kinds of leaders in the text and you may have picked up on this. You find in verse 18 of chapter six, judges. You find officers as well. It appears to me that these are two different offices, although it is possible, I will tell you this, it's possible to translate this judges, namely officers, that's possible. The Hebrew is somewhat ambiguous on this point. But I think it's likely these are two different offices. So you have judges, you have officers or civil servants perhaps. And then a bit later, we have priests that are introduced. In fact, priests are introduced in particular in chapter 17, verses eight through 13, and then again in chapter 18. And so you have these three different offices. Moreover, if we continue to unpack this broader section in Deuteronomy, we're not gonna do that this morning, but I'll mention to you this. Later in chapter 17, you have another office, and that is the office of king. And then later in chapter 18, you have an additional office, and that is the office of prophet. So here you have judges, You have officers, you have priests, you have kings, and you have prophets. Many different leaders are found throughout Israel or are to be found throughout Israel as they enter the land of Canaan. Now, while all of these offices or positions of leadership are involved in some fashion with governing and and providing counsel and legal decisions. Moses, I want you to notice this, at least in our text, this will change a bit later, Moses is less concerned with their specific responsibilities and he's more concerned in the text with their character. That's the concern Moses has concerning leadership in the text. Not that they're effective, Not that they're, quote, successful, depending on how success is defined, but that they are upright, they're just, they're righteous. Look with me again at verses 18 through 20, where this is highlighted. You shall appoint judges, and again, I'm in chapter 16, Uh, Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. Notice, they shall judge the people with what? Righteous judgment. He continues, verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. And so there's a kind of transition here. He's talking to the whole congregation, but whom is he really instructing at this point? The leaders appoint these leaders and now he begins to command the leaders how they are to lead. You shall not pervert justice, verse 19. 
You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Verse 20, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So such leaders over Israel in verse 19 were not to pervert justice. They were not to show partiality, which by the way, literally, this is a Hebrew idiom. It means something like they were not to recognize faces. It's a vivid way to describe this kind of partiality. Don't be one who recognizes a face as you lead. They were not to accept a bribe. The leader in Israel, and we would of course argue the leader in the church as well, must not be a person who is motivated by material gain, by influence, by personal prestige. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of the story told, and I went back and, and, and read up a bit on it, Again, this past week, it's been a number of years since I looked at this particular story, but I'm reminded of the story regarding the great English Baptist theologian and pastor, John Gill. And John was quite the theologian. um, And he was planning to publicly, in this particular case, he was planning to publicly disagree with another man, well-supported man, by the name of Abraham Taylor. And as he was preparing actually to publish against Abraham Taylor and speak out publicly against Abraham Taylor's views, won't get into some of those nuances concerning the views, a friend of Gill's warned him that if he did so, he would certainly lose the financial support of some of Taylor's wealthy friends. Taylor had tremendous support. And there were what was called subscribers in those days. And when you subscribed to someone, you actually contributed financially to the publishing of their books. And they had lists of, subs- of subscriptions. And your name appeared in the actual book if you gave money to provide for the publication. Publishing was expensive. And so a friend of Gill's said, don't do this. If you do this, you're going to lose subscriptions. And Gil responded to this caution with a few simple words. I love this. And it's just seared into my heart. I am not afraid of being poor. Gil goes on to unpack that a bit. He was, he was committed more so to exalting Christ and remaining true to the word of God than he was his own personal prestige and gain. In fact, if at any point exalting Christ meant losing financially, materially, losing prestige, losing influence, he was willing to give it up. I'm not afraid to be poor. This is the heart of a leader. This was the heart of the leader in Israel. This is the heart of a leader in the church today. In the Hebrew text, verse 20 is really unique. I wanted to mention this because I have a microphone. <laughs> the same word appears twice in Hebrew. This, is, this doesn't happen. You don't, you don't need to know this word, but it's tzedek, tzedek. Same thing. It's like, whoa, did Moses start stuttering here? Same word twice. And the ESV has opted to translate this, and I think rightfully so, justice and only justice. Only just two words, same word, justice, justice. That's how the Hebrew text reads. 
unconventional. But it's a way apparently of emphasizing this, right? Justice and only justice, justice alone. Similar root word to, for righteousness, uprightness, rightness. And the idea is that the leaders over God's people as they entered the land of Canaan were to exercise leadership in a manner that brought glory to God that was consistent with the God who alone is just and righteous. That's, that's the privilege of the leader. There are some sermons I, I preach, I think, in God's kindness because I need to hear them. And I feel like this is a moment where I do need to hear this over and over and over again as one who is privileged to have been given leadership in the church. Justice and only justice, rightness and only rightness, righteousness and only righteousness, that which is consistent with the character of God, that's how leaders are to lead. Scripture places a higher premium, church family, on the character of the leader than it does on the gifting of the leader. Let me say that again. Scripture places a higher premium on the character of the leader than it does on the gifting of the leader. There are many gifted leaders that have suffered shipwreck of their faith. Many gifted leaders have become a statistic because their gifting outpaced their character. Many pastors of booming churches where people in the community said, the spirit of God is at work in that place. And doubtless, the spirit of God was and is at work in that place. Many, many such men who lost sight of this reality fell prey to moral failure and became a statistic. As evangelicals, I fear we have fallen prey to this faulty litmus test for ministry success. What is, what is a successful ministry? What is a successful church? And I think oftentimes, we don't always say it explicitly, but our words do betray us. And I'm one of them, okay? I'm not just throwing stones, I'm being stoned, if I may use the imagery. If a ministry is growing rapidly, we are tempted to conclude that the Spirit of God is working in extraordinary ways. How do we know? Well, because of the numbers. We call something a revival when more and more people are getting baptized, right? We call that a revival. We look at, as it were, numbers, influence, prestige, maybe even gifting more closely than we look at character. Seminaries are guilty of this. And I hope, I hope you hear me. I'm going after this because I find it in my own heart daily. Seminaries bring in large church pastors to speak to the young seminarians. I've been there. I've sat in the pews in the seminary chapel and Time and time again, the man who is brought in to bring the word of God, the pastor who is upheld and held forth as the exemplary pastor, consistently 
pastors a large church. Coincidence? I don't think so. And suddenly we communicate to these young seminarians who aspire to be faithful pastors that faithful ministry looks like that product. It looks like a church where there are no seats remaining and more and more people are piling in. That's successful ministry and we've elevated pastoral gifting and influence, I fear, over pastoral character and integrity and faithfulness and uprightness. More important than my gifting and the resulting at times, influence of leading a growing church. More important than that is my spirit-empowered character. I cannot lead you where I am not going. And friends, I was talking to a Sunday school this morning. Sunday school comprised of some of our mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers in the faith here at First Baptist Powell. And one of the things we talked about was growth and we're thankful for growth. We're thankful that even as we're perhaps coming out of COVID, whatever in the world that means, we're gonna be coming out of COVID for the next 75 years, I suspect. Well, we're coming out, you know, it's kind of like the imminent return of Christ. It's imminent for 2,000 years now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But as I was talking to them, we talked about this and we said, you know, we're praising the Lord for some of the growth we're experiencing here at the church, even in the midst of the challenges with COVID. We still have a lot of people, of course, that are staying home and, and, uh, and that is understandable. We're praying, for a, we're praying for our brothers and sisters to return, though nothing can replace being physically present with the people of God. But as we talked about that, I, I made the comment, I said, you know, uh, growth, church growth is not necessarily a telltale sign of the health of a church. Cancer grows. And rapidly, friends, at times. And, and it concerns me that some of the, some, not all, certainly not all, but some of the most rapidly growing churches today really, really are not, I fear, worthy of the name Church. May it never be, may it never be that my gifting, as small as it may be, outpaces my character before God by the power of the Spirit. Maybe I'm just, I'm also requesting that you hold me to that, to that standard. This is one of the reasons why, and this is a bit of one of those rabbit trails, Pastor Tim, told him I'm tempted to take so many of them this morning. This is what I'm taking. This is why this previous week, one of the things I've done in a number of weeks we've done this, I've actually been thinking through, praying through, what, is, what does it look like to evaluate pastoral staff? How do you do that? How do you evaluate your pastors? And I have, I have the sacred stewardship. It's a privilege that you've entrusted to me as senior pastor. I have the sacred stewardship of, of being a kind of head of staff here at the church. And so I have the sacred stewardship of, 
of walking alongside of our other brother pastors and, and even evaluating them to some degree or another. And I want to do that faithfully. And so I started praying about this and talking with some of our associate pastors about this. And this is still really green. But one of the things that, that I have I have done in conversation with others is as I put together this pastoral evaluation sheet, you know, one of the most important facets of the pastoral evaluation sheet is personal godliness. If we are evaluating the success of our pastors on the basis of anything biblical, it must be personal godliness. I mean, just look through 1 Timothy chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is carried along by the Spirit of God and he's unpacking what are the qualifications of an elder and time and time and time again, it has very little to do with gifting and it has so much to do with character. And then I thought, as I was preparing this pastoral evaluation, I thought, my word, what a joy, Father, that I actually, and and then my brothers actually, have a job. We get paid in part to get evaluated on the basis of which, or to the degree to which, by your spirit, we are growing in holiness and godliness. What a grace that is to your leaders. None of this is to say we don't want to grow. We want to grow well. We want to grow in such a way when we stand before Jesus Christ, we do hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to grow in a manner that is consistent with the gospel we preach. And we want to grow not just numerically, we want to grow with regard to personal sanctification and holiness and depth. We want to not just grow in width, we want to grow in depth and rootedness in Christ. Amen. All right. I'm stepping off the soapbox at this point. And we're going to keep moving. The second ingredient for a faithful church, in addition to upright leadership, the second ingredient is wholehearted devotion wholehearted devotion. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. 21 and 22. You shall not plant any trees as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. Verse 22. You shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. So God prohibits Israel from planting a tree, as the text says, as an Asherah. This isn't the first time we've seen this word. This is another way of referring to an image of the Canaanite mother goddess, goddess of the sea. And so here Moses is warning Israel, as he already has before in Deuteronomy effusing worship of the one true and living God with worship of false gods. And we've seen this a couple of times in Deuteronomy. God says, look, I alone am the Lord your God. And so I will tell you how it is I am to be worshiped. Do not adopt the practices of the Canaanites or, and we use this word, this Hebrew word, the toevah. These abominable practices through which they worship their gods. Don't bring those into the worship of the Lord your God. 
I'm not like them, and so worshiping me ought to be different than worshiping those false gods. Moreover, God prohibits Israel from setting up a pillar. Again, this, these, are, these are pillars and images and idols used in Canaanite worship. The degree of devotion that God demands is wholehearted and supreme devotion. Do you notice that? It's exclusive. God is not okay. He's up front with Israel. He's not okay sharing. As Isaiah the prophet says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Don't take what is mine and give it to something else. Something that is, in fact, no God. And I want you to notice, we, we said that a moment ago, but I want to say it again. I want to highlight this. Notice that God does not warn Israel of replacing worship of the true God with false worship of false gods. He's not saying necessarily. He's not saying, look, in place of worshiping me and in place of my worship practices, what I have instructed of you, don't take that, jettison that, and replace it with false worship of false gods. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't add worship of false gods to worship of me. Don't merge don't fuse, don't combine. God warns them of supplementing their worship. Well, we're doing what God said, but we're also gonna do these other things too. We're gonna add to it. We're going to improve worship of God. This is what we call syncretism. Perhaps some of you have heard the term syncretism. This is a way of describing merging worship and devotion of God with false worship offered, offered to false idols, false gods. And for us, this is challenging, isn't it? Because for us, as followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, you know, I suspect, I suspect that if I came into your home, you wouldn't have an Asherah sitting there in your living room. I, I'm just suspecting Um, if my suspicions are wrong, boy, I don't know what I've gotten into then. But I suspect that's not the case. Additionally, you know that as you look down here, you won't find, as it were, overt, physical, tangible, palpable images of false gods. And so it's easy for us to read texts like these and, and decide, well, you know, we're safe. But as I thought about this, I thought, my word, I don't want to get too far on, on this trail, but I, I do want to mention this. How easy is it to take the God of materialism, a love for money, a love for comfort, right? And in the name of wisdom for Jesus, right? We'll even use biblical passages at times. Now, where's that line? It's tough to know, isn't it? But in the name of honoring the Lord with our finances, in the end, actually fall prey to worshiping comfort through finances and not trusting the Lord with our future. I thought about that this week and I thought, my word, Lord, show me. Show me where I am guilty. Not, not, don't show me if I'm guilty. Show me where I'm guilty. How often might we fall prey to the God of individualism? 
Even, even in the way we assess the success of a ministry or the worship experience, right? What do I mean when I assess the worship experience I walk in the doors of the church? I've gathered with the people of God to worship the one true and living God, but I do it through the framework of whether and to what degree it pleases me. And so what I've done is something syncretistic. I've taken the God of individualism and I've merged it into worship of the one true and living God on the Lord's day. I'm not saying we shouldn't have preferences. I've got preferences. But all those preferences need to die from time to time. Because in God's mercy, we have died in Christ and have been raised in Christ to serve one another and to honor him So this is what we call syncretism. The God of scripture demands exclusive allegiance and devotion. And he does not mince words here in the text. But I also want you to notice not only should wholehearted devotion manifest itself in exclusive allegiance to God, as we've talked about, but it should also manifest itself in offering our best to God. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 1. And you're thinking, well, at this rate, we've gone through about five, four or five verses, but we are really going to run through the next couple of sections. <laughs> and that was a part of the plan. Now, have you know, it was a part of the plan. And I wouldn't tell you otherwise, lose rapport with you, no. Notice chapter 17, verse 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish. You see that? Any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination. By the way, that's that same word, toiva. It's an abomination to the Lord your God. So the animals, the animals that Israel was to bring before the Lord and sacrifice to the Lord were to be, quote, without blemish. In other words, they were faultless. They were exceptional livestock. The best. The ones you wanted to keep, you see. The ones that if assessed by natural wisdom, you should keep. God says, those are mine, the best ones. So this is an act of faith. Faith is found throughout the law, by the way. Adherence to the law demands faith in the goodness and grace of God. On the one hand, this instructed Israel to offer their best, right? As we've just talked about, they are to offer their best to the God who would provide. But on the other hand, I want you to see this. This command instructed Israel that the only way to ransom a sinner is through a perfect sacrifice. Now, some of you know exactly where we're going. I hope so. I hope that's the case week after week. And while they were called upon to offer perfect animal sacrifices, right? Animal sacrifices without spot, without blemish. These sacrifices were to be offered time and time and time again, demonstrating indeed that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Moreover, what the Israelites could never do, don't miss this, what they could never do is offer the perfect human sacrifice. 
They couldn't do it. You see, the animal sacrifices without spot or without blemish pointed to the real thing, to the substance, but they weren't the real thing. What Israel could not do is they could not, in response to human failure, provide a perfect human sacrifice, which is what would have been required. They weren't sacrificing goats because goats had sinned. What they needed was a perfect human sacrifice. The problem was there were no perfect humans available. Listen to the way Peter talks about Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. This happens a few times in the New Testament. This is one example of this. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter says, you, that is if you're in Christ, you were ransomed You were purchased, you were set free from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Did you get that? Built into the Old Testament instruction to offer an animal sacrifice without spot and without blemish was a promise that God would someday provide a perfect sacrifice for sinners. Built into this instruction was also the reality, by the way, Israel, you can't do it. But I can, God says, and he indeed did by providing his own son who became human while remaining truly God who lived in perfect obedience to the Father, adhering to the law, every jot, every tittle, offered himself without spot, without blemish, as the perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning, friends? Animal sacrifices were never intended to take away sins. They were always intended to promise the coming of one who would. If you've not placed your faith and your trust in this one who became the perfect sacrifice for you in your place and for your sins, who was buried and who was raised in glorious power on the third day, then I plead with you, don't leave this place. Don't leave this place without embracing Jesus Christ in faith. It can begin with something as simple as a prayer. The prayer, of course, doesn't save. It's Christ himself that saves, but it can begin with something as simple as, Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need someone to rescue me from that sin. And I think, this is how my first prayer went, something like this. I think I believe in Jesus. It's all new to me then. And then have a conversation with us, please, after the service. Even if you have questions, stay afterward. And as you walk out the doors and turn to the left, on the right-hand side, there's a room called Crossroads. And we would love to have a conversation with you in there. There will be a pastor in that room. Go in there and have a conversation. Ask for prayer. Ask questions. Perhaps we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn what it's like to serve and trust in this Savior who provided a sacrifice that was sufficient for sinners like us. Finally, in addition to upright leadership and wholehearted devotion, we find the ingredient of corporate discipline. 
corporate discipline. And I think this is where I'm most tempted to chase more rabbits, so we're going to fight against that and see how this goes here at the conclusion of the sermon. Look with me at verses 2 through 5, if you would. Chapter 17, 2 through 5, that really does summarize the remainder of our text in many ways. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God. Now notice it tells you what it means. What does God mean by doing what is evil? Because after all, the reality is everyone's doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. But this is a specifically egregious sin. Notice, so this is someone who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord in transgressing his covenant, verse three, and has gone out and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden. And it is told you and you hear of it. So this is apostasy, as it were. This is the refusal to honor the Lord alone as Lord. This is idolatry. This is syncretism. And this is public and egregious sin. God instructs them, verse four, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. I really think this is why many pastors don't preach the Old Testament. And if I skipped over passages like this, you'd ask me, why'd you skip that, Pastor? As you should. I want you to notice that capital punishment through stoning was never to happen, first of all, on the basis of one witness, a single testimony. As verse verse six, rather, verse six indicates it demanded two or three testimonies, two or three witnesses. You need to know that. You'll find this language also throughout the New Testament. Moreover, when this happened, the witnesses were to be the first ones to stone the guilty party. Do you see that? And then the entire community would join in. And so if you were one of these three, let's say, witnesses who actually had witnessed to the crime of idolatry and cosmic treason, then you were to be one of the first ones to throw a rock. This was congregational. We have here, look, I'm a Baptist. We have nascent congregationalism right here in the Old Testament. The entire congregation was to be involved in removing this person. It's not just the leaders that do this. It's the congregation. The more difficult cases, and I'm just really summarizing now, which I had planned on doing before I started preaching, just to highlight the reality of where we are. The more difficult cases to determine guilt or the lack thereof, as we find in verses 8 through 19, were to be taken up. They were to go up to that place where the tabernacle would finally rest. Eventually, of course, this would be Jerusalem. And these cases were to be taken to the Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office at that time where God would dispense his judgment by means of the priests and the judge. This isn't the first time we've encountered a difficult instruction in Deuteronomy, and it won't be the last time. 
And if we're not careful, I, I was recalling something that I heard Sinclair Ferguson say years ago, and, and I didn't recall it till just about the last 24 hours, actually, so I'm trying to recall when I read this or where I heard this, but I'm confident it was Sinclair Ferguson. If we're not careful, we will assess God's judgment on the basis of how severe we feel our sins are. That's what we do when we go to the Old Testament oftentimes, right? Death? I mean, this really required stoning? And then if you were a witness, you had to be the first one to pick up rocks and actually throw stones at this person. And we're not just talking about a a, a playground brawl with little boys and girls throwing pebbles at one another. Someone accidentally gets hurt. This person's going to die. And I feel it. I feel it as I read this. I'm like, Lord, really? Is it that serious? And so I fall prey to assessing God's judgment on the basis of how, how severe I feel my sin and their sin really is. And Sinclair Ferguson says something like this. Rather than assessing God's judgment on the basis of our sin, consider assessing the severity of your sin on the basis of God's judgment. How do we know sin is serious? Because of these kinds of passages. It demands death. That's the judgment in the text. And this doesn't even really get at it though. Let's go a bit further. What does God's judgment against sin ultimately demand as a ransom? The death of the God-man. I never really understand the severity of my own sin unless I see my own sin in light of Golgotha. I don't actually understand how serious sin really is unless I'm seeing my sin through the lens of the death of Jesus Christ. It's there when I realize my sin actually is far worse than I ever had imagined. And isn't it true as Christians, if you've known the Lord for some time, isn't it true that you actually are learning more and more about the depths of your own sin? And did you see the purpose of this act of stoning in chapter 17, verse 7b? So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And this same statement occurs in verse 12. Congregational purity was the goal. Congregational purity. On the one hand, this text in Deuteronomy does provide instruction for the church. And we're going to talk about that as we wrap up. On the other hand, it's important to see some discontinuity, isn't there? Isn't it? It's important to understand that we are not Israel. We are not entering the land of Canaan. And we're not a geopolitical nation, as it were, under God's rule where the church and things have changed on account of the coming of Jesus Christ. We are a spiritual kingdom. And so while this text certainly instructs the people of God today, it certainly instructs us concerning congregational health, our obedience to this instruction will look differently than Israel's obedience. So if you're visiting the church this morning, you'll be happy to know 
that we don't stone people for unrepentant idolatry. It's not what we do. In fact, we would believe that it's actually now a sin to do so. It abuses the nature of the church. Misunderstands the text of Scripture, misapplies the text of Scripture. Let me give you an example of this. How does Paul do this? And we've seen this already even a few months back, but how does Paul interpret and apply texts like this, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Well, he quotes this text and others in 1 Corinthians 5, 13, where a man is removed or he's to be removed from the church for his unrepentant sexual immorality. And he's to be removed from the church, not by stoning. The man is still going to be allowed to live as it were. He's removed from the church through excommunication. There is a kind of removal process as the congregation gathers in the presence of God and by the spirit of God and the church gets together and pronounces judgment against the sin and as a result, the man himself is no longer a member of the church. He's excommunicated. And so Paul quotes passages like this and he says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. He's interpreting, you see, this text and other texts through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not as if God now, after the coming of Jesus, says, you know what? My congregation can be as unholy as they want to be. Nor is it that God says, you know what? Take this text and just transplant it into your 21st century church context and gather up stones and take care of business. Both, of course, an abuse of the text. And so this actually receives expression in, in the process that we oftentimes refer to as church discipline. And the process that results in if there's unrepentance and persistence in unrepentance concerning egregious and public sin, if there's persistence there, this process does result in removal from church membership. It does. Well, why do we do such a thing? Well, we do such a thing because... Christ commands us to. We don't have time to turn to these passages, but you could jot some of these down. Matthew 18 is perhaps the more prominent example where Jesus Christ gives instruction concerning how to approach your brother or sister who is in sin. We go to passages like 1 Corinthians 5, another passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 also is a passage that deals with this category of church discipline. First Thessalonians chapter five, I'm just thinking about some of these now offhand. Titus, Titus chapter three is also one. Warn a divisive person twice and then after two times, remove them. These are, these are examples of church discipline in the New Testament. It's really clear. And by the way, historically, churches have done this. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that's been willing to do this. I hate that we have to do this sometimes. Church accountability and discipline has fallen on hard times today. It's not popular. This is not popular. It's not popular to remove someone from the church. No, look, look, not because of sin. <laughs> How do I know that? Well, because I'm here. I'm still here. If we removed members for sinning, well, you know, you wouldn't have me as your pastor anymore. I would be disqualified. You'd be removing me very soon. 
No, we're instructed throughout scripture. When we put all this together, we're instructed to, to, as it were, approach one another, love on one another, discipline one another, but not finally excommunicate unless there is egregious public unrepentant sin. This is someone who says, I'm clinging to my sin and disobedience to God. I don't care what God says. I'm gonna continue on the path of wickedness and still claim the name of Jesus. And Christ in his mercy says, no, my people are not to allow this in the churches. We are to remove, as it were, our affirmation of their faith. As a congregation, we are to remove our affirmation of their faith. They may in fact know the Lord. We can't know that, only God knows. What we are saying when we remove someone on account of unrepentant, persistent, unrepentant, egregious sin, what we're saying is we don't have sufficient evidence to say this person is a follower of Jesus. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary and we've got to remove it. And then, of course, if there's repentance, what do we do? We rejoice and welcome them back, right? Okay, so don't misunderstand all of this. Discipline has a negative connotation. And boy, I want to say a lot right now and you're going to be hungry. It's ironic to me that the great American Baptist theologian of the 19th century, American Baptist theologian, by the way, Baptist churches as a whole, in my experience, are not doing this well. But the great American Baptist theologian of the 19th century, John Dagg, wrote these words, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That's strong, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And I have found that one of the primary differences between a church willing to trust Christ and then on the other hand, a church more prone to trust contemporary models for success is found in whether the church is willing to actually remove members for persistent, unrepentant, and egregious sin. Before we close, I do want you to see something else in the text. Look at the result of faithfulness to deal with this kind of egregious idolatry and disobedience in Israel. Look at verse 13 of Deuteronomy 17. And all the people, you see that? And all the people shall hear and what? Fear. And not act presumptuously again. By the way, very similar language to Acts chapter five concerning Ananias and Sapphira. When God drops two people dead on account of public disobedience, the whole church fears. So this isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. But I want you to notice that one of the purposes for church discipline and even removing a member from membership when that member simply refuses to repent is to cultivate a kind of gospel fear among the members of the church. And here we're talking about the kind of fear that Deuteronomy consistently upholds as exemplary and commends. It's that kind of fear that is consonant with love for God and also produces obedience to God. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. So it's congregational purity. And when we don't do this, if we refuse to do this, if any church refuses to do this, they sacrifice congregational purity. And I'm convinced that one of the most powerful, powerful tools for reaching the North Knox County community and for reaching Powell, Tennessee with the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is to be a congregation who actually shows the transformative power of the gospel. Is to be a church that actually shows the surrounding community that the gospel we preach is a transformative gospel. That to say we trust in Jesus Christ and continue to resist his instruction is nonsense. And there are so many people, so many good brothers and sisters, I think, that have been deceived into thinking that if they do such a thing, that is, exercise discipline in the local congregation, if they do such a thing, they won't reach people. Brief historical bit. In the 18th century, some of the fastest growing churches in England were the English Baptist churches. Second half of the 18th century, and these were churches that exercised discipline on a regular basis. Maybe there's something to the world actually needing to see the impact of the gospel among the members of the church. Maybe they don't just need to hear empty words. Jesus Christ has come to transform us and see people who aren't transformed by the gospel they preach. We've got to close. Thanks to Tana, as I started, we have our children in the kitchen, as I mentioned, from time to time. And the other day, we were making pancakes. And I say we loosely, okay? Madeline wanted to get creative with the pancakes by adding ingredients. On the one hand, there was nothing wrong intrinsically with this. On the other hand, she has not yet mastered making pancakes. And so we talked about this, and we've, we've gone back and forth, and I've allowed her to do different things and add different things, and, and to be honest with you, the result isn't as good as it could be when she doesn't add. And so I've shared with her, first, you need to learn to keep the main things the main things. Master this thing. Do what it says on the page. (laughs) There's no passion here. You're really hungry now. Church family, this is true of First Baptist Pal. We're going to, look, creativity, praise the Lord for it. Innovation, praise the Lord for it. There's room for this as we move forward into the future as a church. Moreover, there will be various idiosyncrasies that characterize us as a congregation, that characterize me as a pastor. But more importantly, what matters most is that we learn to follow the clear recipe for congregational life and worship and health here in Powell, Tennessee. May God be pleased with this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that's our desire. Our desire is by your spirit to obey you. Recognizing, of course, that that obedience is broken. And yet it's being renewed by the work of your spirit through the gospel. Teach us, Father, the importance of of having upright leaders. Remind us, Father, that more important than gifting is character. Teach us, O God, as a congregation to be 
wholeheartedly devoted to you. And to find such devotion in the person and work of Jesus Christ and teach us, O God, in the strength that you provide according to your word to commit in love and worship to corporate discipline. Transform us by the power of your word. Be pleased with us as we seek to honor you here in Powell, Tennessee at First Baptist Powell in the 21st century. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the Spirit together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.